Well, good afternoon and Merry Christmas. Kenny's the sound guy right now, so as soon as he gets back there, uh, we'll see if we can fix that ring. So we've had some illness running through our church. Many of you know that. One victim of said illness was going to be running sound tonight. So uh, <clears throat> Kenny's back there now, and hopefully he can figure out what's going on with that ring. And we won't have it throughout the remainder. But um, I have been dealing with some illness, but praise God, I'm here tonight, obviously, and I am supposedly no longer contagious, so that's good news for all of us. And uh, I have the privilege of preaching. Uh, my name is Nathan Smith, and I'm one of the three pastors here at Piney Ridge Church. We're so glad that God has brought all of you to worship with us on this Christmas Eve. And um, we are obviously all here celebrating Christmas, and so all of us here, at least in some measure, we observe Christmas, no matter what our, our uh, beliefs about it are. Um, I don't want to assume that everyone here believes, as we do at Piney Ridge Church, about Christmas, um, though our hope is that you will believe, as we do, um, about Christmas. But we're all at least observing Christmas in some way. Um, and I wonder if you even know anybody who doesn't observe Christmas, like in, even if it's a totally kind of secular way. Um, <clears throat> it's likely that you don't. I was trying to think about it, and I don't think I know anyone who doesn't at least, uh, you know, give gifts or do something for Christmas. And uh, there was a survey done by Lifeway Research Group uh, recently, and it showed that 91% of Americans observe Christmas in some way. So... There's a good chance you don't know anybody who uh, doesn't observe Christmas. But they kind of probed deeper in this survey, and they followed up on that question by asking how much of the biblical Christmas story that those surveyed could tell. And they found that uh, just slightly more than one in five Americans say that they could accurately tell the Christmas story from the Bible from memory. So one in five think that, yeah, I could probably, you know, basically accurately tell the biblical Christmas story. Then about 31% of adults say they could tell the story, but maybe miss some details or get a couple of things wrong. Another quarter say they could probably kind of just only give an overview of the Christmas story from the Bible. And 17% say that they probably wouldn't be able to tell any of it. And uh, those statistics, given the fact that Biblical literacy in our culture is, is declining constantly. Those statistics are not all that surprising, even though it's unfortunate. But as I was reading that, it kind of made me wonder what response they would have gotten if they would have probed a little bit deeper, asking a question like, whether you know the story or not, what is the significance of the story? What's the significance of the birth of Jesus? Why, do the, why does the story matter? Why do the details of the story matter? And I don't know what kind of responses they would have gotten back. They probably would have been all over the place, I would imagine. But I want to make sure before you leave this afternoon that you have at least one solid biblical reason, uh, one solid biblical way of answering that question. If someone were to ask you, why is the birth of Jesus significant? I want you to have one solid answer that you can give. And here it is. I'm going to give it to you right up front. The birth of Jesus is significant because Jesus is the true king who invites you into his joyful kingdom. The birth of Jesus is significant because Jesus is the true king who invites you into his joyful kingdom. 
And we're going to look at um, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 35. So if you have a Bible, I would invite you to go ahead and open it. If you don't have a Bible, but you'd like to have one, there are some on the back tables here. And I'm going to ask you all, if you would, to stand for just a couple of minutes. Here at Piney Ridge, we love to stand because we believe that when we read from the Bible, we're reading from God's Word. And so to honor God by honoring His Word, we stand. Um, And so if you want to go grab a Bible, you're welcome to do that. And you can take that home with you if you'd like. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 35. I'll read those now. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This is the Word of God. You may have a seat. So the birth of Jesus is significant because Jesus is the true King who invites you into his joyful kingdom. And I want to help you see that from this section in Luke chapter 1. So first of all, Jesus is the true king because he has the right to rule as creator. That the eternally existing second person of the Trinity, the one through whom all things were made, he took on every aspect of humanity except without sin. And we see this in our passage that we just read in verse 31 where uh, after greeting Mary, reassuring her, that she doesn't need to be afraid because he's going to give her good news, the angel says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and we will be called the Son of the Most High. Well, Mary, understandably, has some questions about this. And so, verse 34, Mary says to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answers her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, because of this, because of how the child will be conceived by the Holy Spirit, therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So what would be otherwise impossible is possible with God. The angel, he doesn't explain the biology of it. He doesn't doesn't try to get into detail and explain something that is beyond our comprehension. He simply states that Jesus will be conceived in Mary's womb through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't actually explicitly say here that Jesus is God himself in the flesh. But the fact that that's true is made clear throughout the rest of the New Testament. I want to read one very clear passage from Hebrews chapter 1. 
The first three verses says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. There it is. This unfathomable mystery of God's power and wisdom. In in that power and wisdom, this baby that is to be conceived in Mary's womb, truly human, would also be truly God. Upholding the universe by the word of his power, even as his body is being knit together, even as his heart begins to beat, even as his, his limbs and his spinal column begin to form and be developed. He's upholding the universe by his power. <clears throat> and for this reason, because Jesus is unique, unlike any other man, possessing two natures in one person, the God-man, Jesus, he is king. The angel's words tell us of another reason that Jesus is the true king. And that second reason is that through Jesus, God was fulfilling his covenant promise to David. So look at uh, <clears throat> the second half of verse 32 and on into verse 33. And the angel says, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, the angel here is referring to the many Old Testament prophecies that spoke of a king who would be like David, but far greater, one who would usher in a kingdom of unprecedented peace, justice, prosperity, health, and joy for, for the people of Israel. I mean, in, in 2 Samuel 7, God speaks to David through the prophet Nathan, and he makes this promise to him about, this, um, about his offspring and, the, and how they will carry on this dynasty as, as they live in this kingdom that God is setting up for David. And the crux of that promise is found in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, where God is speaking to King David, and he says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, over the course of many generations, it would become more and more and more clear that neither David nor any of David's sons could fulfill this promise that God had made because, first of all, they kept dying. So their, their kingdoms obviously weren't lasting forever. Many of them were um, <clears throat> failures as kings. They were oppressive to the people. They were rebels against God. And so they did not fulfill this promise. It was obvious that there was still yet one to come to whom this promise uh, would finally and fully be kept. And eventually the kingdom was totally removed. David's heirs were taken away into exile. There was no kingdom. And yet faithful Jews still clung to this promise that was made to David. And prophets spoke of one who would come, who would reestablish the kingdom, that, that a king would come who was descended from David, but he would be far greater than David, one who would rule not only over Israel, but actually over the entire world. 
So there was this longing, this expectation, this belief that God would keep his promise. And now Gabriel is telling Mary that all those years of longing are over. The king has come. God will fulfill all his promises and his prophecies. And it's going to be through this child. He will be king over all creation and of his kingdom. There will be no end. So the fact that Jesus was born a child and yet a king That's the good news of great joy that the angels proclaim to the shepherds in Luke 2. That good news of great joy is that in the birth of Jesus, the kingdom of God is broken in on the kingdom of darkness. The true king has come and he invites us into his kingdom. And I know that um, here in America, where we fought a war to get out from under a king, the idea of kingdom sounds strange. We don't think that we need to or want to be invited into a kingdom. And yet the reason that all earthly kings and their kingdoms have failed is that they are all sinful humans. And that they're all prone to all the same flaws and weaknesses that all of us are. But as kings, they have more power to act out on those sinful impulses. So every human king, every human ruler of any kind is going to have a hunger for power. They're going to be susceptible to greed, to lust, to murder, to indulging themselves in whatever way they can and abusing their subjects. And this is why it is such good news that God has sent his son to be king because we need a righteous king. We need a king who can sympathize with us as humans, a king who reassures us by his very presence, taking on flesh, that God cares deeply about us. We need a king who will never abuse his power, never be selfish, never abuse us as his subjects, never pervert justice. A perfectly righteous king. That's the kind of ruler that we need. That's the kind of king that Jesus is. And he has come to establish that kingdom, but as Pastor Steve reminded us last week, um, his kingdom is not fully established, right? We still experience much of the brokenness of this uh, worldly kingdom that we live in. We still deal with darkness, like sickness, like death, fear, uncertainty, broken relationships, war, all of these things. And so, yes, we look forward with longing to the day when all of this will cease, when the king returns and fully establishes his kingdom. And so we do pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And yet, when Jesus grew up and he began his public ministry, his gospel message was that the kingdom of God was at hand. He proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. He said the kingdom is at hand. And so when we celebrate the birth of the king, we're not celebrating only in anticipation of the final coming of his kingdom when he returns. We're also celebrating our participation in his kingdom right now. And you might ask, well, if there's still so much brokenness in the world... The kingdom of darkness still has so much influence and power, then, then what does it mean that the kingdom of Jesus has come? Why don't I see it? Why don't I see that the kingdom of Jesus has broken into this world and that 
We can participate in it. Well, first of all, I would say that you actually do see the influence of the kingdom of Jesus all around you. Like a fish swimming in water, it's the only environment that you've ever known. You're swimming in it so much that you don't even recognize it. There's a a historian named Tom Holland who wrote a book called Dominion. And in that book, he argues that nearly every aspect of Western culture has been deeply shaped by Christianity, especially things like our views of individual rights, the equality of all people, regardless of race or gender, the value of children, the importance of justice, um, the importance of medical care for all people, our hospital systems, all of these things, and so many more. So many of these things that we take for granted, that we think they're normal, or, or this is just right, this is just the way things should be, much of that was not normal or seen as right or good until Jesus came and established his kingdom. And in fact, much of what we look at as darkness or evil remaining in the world, it was considered normal in many cultures before the kingdom of Christ began to spread and grow and change things in the world. In in those times before, poor people would starve to death. And there was no problem because poor people didn't have any value. Women, children were raped and abused. It wasn't seen as a problem because women and children didn't have any value. People were enslaved. That wasn't a problem because weak people were seen as deserving enslavement. But all that began to change when the king came. And wherever his kingdom spreads, it continues to do that work of bringing light to those who sit in darkness. It lifts up the downtrodden, the broken in spirit. Light has broken into the darkness. And the king doesn't merely want us to stand on the outskirts of the kingdom and observe these things and and how how the world is changing as his kingdom spreads. He actually invites us to participate in his kingdom now in a way that gives us a foretaste of what his kingdom will be like when he returns and fully establishes it. What is that kingdom life like? Well, the Apostle Paul sums up life in the kingdom in Romans 14, 17. He says, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is what the kingdom of God is. It's not a specific place. It's the reign of King Jesus. Wherever he reigns, That's where his kingdom is. And where his kingdom is, there is righteousness and peace and joy. When Jesus brings us into his kingdom, he brings us under the influence of his Holy Spirit, who begins to change us into a people who are increasing always in righteousness and peace and in joy. And at our core, I I believe that these are the things that we all desire, that we desire righteousness. And this begins with being declared righteous by God because we've trusted in the righteousness of Jesus. That brings us into a right relationship with God. And then the Holy Spirit begins working in us righteousness so that we begin to live in right relationship with other people. And as the kingdom grows, more and more people live in that kind of right, loving relationship with one another. And living in that way, the Holy Spirit begins to develop in us a supernatural inner peace that can't be shaken by the way that others respond to us, by circumstances in our life. 
And as we grow in righteousness and peace, it inevitably leads to an increasing joy, to happiness. Remember, the coming of Jesus was announced by the angels as good tidings of great joy, of joy. His kingdom is a kingdom of joy. Jesus doesn't call us into a kingdom of joyless servitude. He calls us into a kingdom of happiness, of peace, of righteousness. There's a pastor named Octavius Winslow who uh, expressed this beautifully. He said that the religion of Christ is the religion of joy. Christ came to take away our sins, to roll off our curse, to unbind our chains, to open our prison house, to cancel our debt. Is not this joy? Where can we find a joy so real, so deep, so pure, so lasting? There is every element of joy, deep, ecstatic, satisfying, sanctifying joy in the gospel of Christ. The believer in Jesus is essentially a happy man. Jesus invites you into his kingdom of joy today. He invites you into true happiness. And this, this is how he invites you. When one who has already entered into the kingdom tells you the story, the good news of what Jesus has come, and you believe in it. You enter in by believing that this King Jesus can be your King. By believing that you need him to rule your life, to lead you into righteousness and peace and joy. But not only that, but you need him to rescue you from your greatest enemy, which is your sin. Jesus was born as a man so that he could die on the cross to pay the sin penalty of all who will trust in him. And he rose from the dead as a man so that all who trust in him will one day be raised with him to life, resurrection life, entering into this kingdom, this everlasting kingdom of joy and peace and righteousness. He invites you into this kingdom today. Will you respond to him? King Jesus also offers an invitation for those of us who've already entered into the kingdom. He invites us to live with joy. He invites us to live happy lives. We're in this kingdom of the joyful king, a kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy. And yes, we still walk in this world where there's so much darkness and brokenness. There's so much to lament, but we should be like the Apostle Paul, that we should be sorrowful, yes, because there's much sorrow in the world, but always rejoicing, even in that sorrow. And we should want to see others join us in the kingdom. We should want to see others experience this kind of joy and peace that we know. And if we want to do that, one of the ways that we can encourage that is by living with joy. There's another pastor named J.C. Ryle who said, A cheerful, kindly spirit is a great recommendation to a believer. It is a positive misfortune to Christianity when a Christian cannot smile. A merry heart and a readiness to take part in all innocent mirth are gifts of inestimable value. 
They go far to soften prejudices, to take stumbling blocks out of the way, and to make way for Christ and the gospel. And I was um, <clears throat> talking to a young lady several years back who grew up um, in a home where uh, no one in her family was a Christian. She didn't really know anything about Christianity, didn't know any, any Christians in her circle of friends, or uh, no one who had influence in her life <clears throat> that she knew was a Christian, and um, experienced some pretty rough things in her life. But she came to Christ in college, and she said that the first thing that brought her to the point where she was interested in hearing about Jesus was that she started noticing all these happy people on campus. And there hadn't been a lot of happy people in her life, so she wanted to know why all these people were happy. And as she got to know them, she realized that all the happiest people on campus were Christians. And so, of course, she wanted to know, what are you all so happy about? And they told her. They told her the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And she believed it, and so she now has that same joy for herself. And brothers and sisters in Christ, may this be true of us. May we live with such joy that our, our joy-filled living causes others to want to know, why are you so happy? Why do you have this kind of joy? Why do the things that seem to wreck everyone else's life not affect you the same way? What kind of peace do you have? Why do you live the way you do? And may we be eager to explain that we have been called into a kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy by a joyful king. And tonight, before we <clears throat> leave, we are going to take communion and this um, communion time is for all those who have believed, who have said, yes, Jesus is my king. I give my life to him. I trust my salvation to him. And we take communion because though we are celebrating the birth of Jesus, we are remembering that Jesus was born not just to be a cute little baby in a manger, not even to grow up and, and do miracles and to teach, which he did. But because Jesus was also born, that he might die. Because we were all born in sin. Jesus was born without sin. We needed one who could be our substitute. Jesus came as that substitute. So that if we trust in him, our sins can be forgiven. And we trust that when he died on the cross, that he was paying the penalty for our sins. And so we take this, um, this wafer, this bread that represents his flesh that was hung on that cross, and we drink this juice that represents his blood that was poured out on the cross. And so if you're here tonight and you are trusting in Jesus and what he has done for you, if you are trusting in his right, righteousness alone, then um, <clears throat> whether you're a member here at Pioneer Church or not, we invite you to take communion in just a few moments. Uh, the way that we'll do that <clears throat> is you'll get up out of your seats, go to the right, <clears throat> come up and grab the communion elements, and then head back to your seat. And um, you can take, your, take communion there with your family. Um, or if you're here just by yourself, you can pray and take communion alone. But again, that's 
for all those who are trusting in Jesus, you're welcome to come and take communion. But we ask that if you're not believing in Jesus, that you not take communion. But we would love to talk with you about what it means to, to know Jesus as your king, to be a part of this kingdom of joy. And so I'm going to go ahead and invite you to stand. I'm going to pray. And then for those who should come and take communion, I invite you to come as soon as I say amen. Oh God, thank you. We thank you for being the God of grace and love and wisdom and power. That you had a plan for redemption that would never have come to any of our minds. That we couldn't make up. <clears throat> God, we praise you for enacting that plan in time. That, that all of your promises weren't empty. They were all true. You fulfilled them all. Jesus, we praise you for being the faithful son, the glorious king who deserves our worship. And we pray that by your spirit right now, we would worship you as we take this communion meal that reminds us, that humbles us, reminding us that we, we would have no hope at all in this world or for eternity unless you came. So lead us to worship, Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. You may come.